You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jeffrey. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open every day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. We also offer online shopping and curbside pickup through our website, skylightbooks.com. And you can find a schedule of upcoming events on there as well. It's my pleasure to welcome Courtney Donnell onto the podcast today to talk about her novel, It's Not Nothing. Courtney Donnell is a writer living in Providence, Rhode Island. She received her greater education from the public library, and this is her first novel. How are you doing today, Courtney? Hi, I'm well. I'm well. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited and nervous to to be here. <laughs> well, it's a real treat to have a Rhode Islander on the podcast. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> I'm super excited for this. Um, and you have something from the novel to read? I do. Yeah. So I figure, um, you know, a great place to start is always right after the beginning. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, we'll read an excerpt here. It's just a short one. Uh, my dissociative identity walks into a bar. Father's Day. What a scene. The whole bar teams with men who tried and failed or just failed, all of them tying it on, trying to get on with it. They open their mouths wide. They toss their heads back. They laugh like it costs them nothing to laugh as they do, like it's directing them to some grander cultural goal. And he's out there somewhere frantically wondering, does she remember? She does. I've taken cover in the stations of my own discarded life. Chasing a high time, holding court, I'm awash in the attention of drunks looking to get laid. I hide my backpack beneath the bar stool, out of sight. It's bursting at the seams with all that I have. I hear my voice and introduction. I'm Rosemary. Am I? A band plays. We, the audience, are not on their side. There's the sound guy, who's also the bartender. There's the bellied-up regulars, the soon-to-be lifers. A lot of shitty, shitty men who ought to be thanking the band because now they've got something to bitch about. What I'm dying to ask them is, was it really better back then, or were you just younger? It doesn't help that the band is, in fact, terrible. But most bands are terrible, just like most painters are terrible, and writers, too. The difference is writers and painters don't demand your attention. Our terrible doesn't involve a microphone. The singer plugs another show between songs. Come out and support, he says. Support what? You? This? I didn't always live like this. I used to live a different life. It's a difference of being down and out versus the performance of down and out. Sure, I can feel the glares trained in my direction, can hear the whispers growing louder. But I pass, I think I pass, navigating this situation within a community that romanticizes the suffering artist, where one person's daily struggle is another person's passion project. Dilettantes dabbling in the dread of a mind gone dark, their authenticity a euphemism for the absence of an original idea. Deep in my cups, I meet no strangers. The more it happens, the more predictable it becomes. Introductions include band names, whatever the hell band they played in 10 years ago. So what you do is you start out with the idea that most people are full of shit. I'm a guest star, younger than all of them. The age difference is no small thing here on the fringe of fully formed friend groups. 
those who have gone through the fires of their 20s together, coupling and uncoupling, collaborating, drinking, drugging, undrugging, collaborating again, then intermittently ostracizing, coupling with some idea of permanence, going back to school, moving out of bad neighborhoods into somewhat better neighborhoods, moving on and now connecting with one another only through reminiscence, as if we were young together is all that's required to sustain a friendship. Me, I'm a bridge burner myself. I've never not been around. A true townie. Hell, we might have crossed paths before. Whether I remember is another thing. But I'm welcome as a spectator, as an extension of him, whomever I am linked to that night. We will talk about him. We will relate to one another through him, but we will never talk about me, which is fine. I say stuff like, I'd love to hear the story about the A&R guy who took your band out for dinner in 96. What I never say is, good luck you imbeciles, your nostalgia is killing you. I have only myself to blame for withstanding this, taking it on the chin with these people. It's not to say there's no benefit for me. A thing no one talks about is how you can wield a person by letting him think he's wielding you. I'm no grifter. I'm just taking the elevator down, all the way down. The terrible drummer of the terrible band sidles up to me in the corner, and for the upteenth time, I miss the chance to self-appoint a nickname. I tell him he should have just played Wipeout for 30 minutes, give the people what they want. He scans me as I laugh, as if I'm laughing at his expense, but it's merely the hope of a private joke getting into the water supply, even if the private joke is between me and myself. What do I do? Like, for money? What do I do for money? Is that what you're asking? I make lattes and mixed drinks and sometimes art, formally. Now, I make a mess is what I make. But I let him off easy and I follow him home. Because anyone who shows any interest, I follow them home. The drummer woos me with mushrooms. I've been saving these, he says, and I'm honored, I guess. It's a giggly trip, barely a trip. We watch Mission Impossible on cable. He's convinced the whole thing is a Toyota commercial. He is easy to convince. What's so funny, he asks. It just kills me, I say, winded. Tom Cruise running. In a fit of inspiration, I suggest he change the band name from whatever the hell to Monkey Knife Fight. You can have that, I tell him. I'm giving it to you. There have been times I thought I was a genius. Now, not so much. The sex is crime scene sex. I had balked, but he told me no, no, no. He was cool with it. The whole ordeal reeks like grimy pennies. I wonder if he wonders, was it worth it? Because now laundry has become a priority, and judging from the state of him in his bedroom, laundry has never been a priority. A broke-ass period is, for me, all about paper towels. Paper towels lifted by the ream from the convention center bathroom because the mall has switched to hand dryers in an effort to be green. What's the thing about bears and menstruation? Is it the blood they're drawn to or the pheromones? Mauled by a bear, ripped to shreds, ripped to death. I'm not lining up for it or anything, but it has its appeal. I'd like to take, be taken out by something mightier than me. I've had the same thought night swimming and drunk. I would swim out far, too far, content to be taken by the ocean. I'd be honored. This way I'm headed, this way I've gone, it will probably be something pathetic that does me in. Like I'll be struck and killed by a smart car, or worse, struck by a smart car, surviving but dying slowly, knowing I was smote by a fucking smart car. I've tried to end it on my own terms, believe you me. I failed, and I failed, and I failed, and I failed. Me and myself are approached by a bear. Myself takes off running. Me says, what the hell are you doing? You can't outrun a bear. 
myself says, bitch, I only have to outrun you. The gathering dark, it gathers around me. I am the body to which it is drawn. And yet, what do I know of bodies? Me, a ghost trapped in this rotting meat machine. I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. That was Courtney Dinell reading from her novel. It's not nothing. Um, yeah, one of my favorite lines in the book, uh, your nostalgia is killing you. It was one of the first ones I wrote down. Um, I, I could feel that bar very well. You do such a good job of rendering these, you know, Rhode Island scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wanted to start by asking about the form of the book. Um, it's written in the first person, um, and it, but it moves so freely, like just that part with the bear in the woods and it becoming a hypothetical situation. Um, and I was kind of curious who uh, you mentioned your, your, in your acknowledgments, your bookcase deities. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if there's anyone in particular that you was kind of served as a model. You have the Clarice Lispector epigraph. Yeah. She definitely came to mind reading it as well. Yeah. Well, my, yeah, my bookcase deities are definitely um, mostly masters of the short story. Um, I, um, I feel like I kind of wrote like a flash fiction novel. Um, so I'm, you know, especially the lineage of minimalist contemporary fiction. Um, uh, yeah, Amy Hempel, Mary Robeson, um, but also, you know, poetry too, Lucille Clifton and Ada Lamont. To my mind, like the only difference between those um that work on the page is kind of like just where they're shelved at your public library, you know? Um, but I love, I'm enamored of compression. I'm enamored of things that are like so spare um, that they're self-evident, you mm. know? So not compression or minimalism as in being like cold or austere, but like minimal, like a knife, you know, mm. is kind of like, that's that, uh, that just is, you know, the keystone of, I think, kind of my style fascinations, but also it really suited the character too. Um, you know, this idea of having a real urgent first person um, uh, kind of narrative, it's, it reflects the greater themes of uh, a, a young woman responding as, right. you know, not really having any for- hindsight, definitely not having any foresight, um, you know, so in that way, keeping the kind of bad stuff, the trauma off screen was a real deliberate style choice. You know, Um, it's not about what happened. It's about the, the unbidden toll of what happens. Um, And all those things kind of got mixed up in the soup and, um, and uh, yeah, I landed with a super taut (laughs) slim novel. Um, But it's just as long as it needs to be, I think. Yeah, I you touched on something that I thought really worked well in there, which was, um, you know, like there's kind of this this me and myself, like the narrator, and then kind of like her more self-hating impulses, and they're kind of doing battle at first, and then later this therapist L comes in, and that kind of becomes the second voice. Um, so even though it's like a very interior novel, like things shift throughout, and I thought that was really cool. It's similarly, like you mentioned it. Um, like the trauma being off screen, but the sense of its contours becoming like slowly more clear as the book goes on without without ever having the scene where it's like, here it is, the thing. Because yeah, yeah. in the narrator says this at some point, it, it's not about one event. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of reckoning with like what that whole life was. Um, mm-hmm. But it's interesting you brought up poetry being influential too, because I don't know if it, what chapter it was, but I 
began to realize that the chapter titles were functioning more like poem titles where it's like kind of the first line mm -hmm. and then we're kind of off to the races um oh. I thought that was an interesting and cool choice yeah oh thank you yeah we went Emily Dickinson <laughs> I, was, yeah. I was um yeah it was a, a like a style consideration but also you know um I I wrote a novel, I wrote a novel, like accidentally wrote a novel. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there were certain things that when I was like taking it across the finish line, as it were, um, I needed to uh, have some element of like unification mm -hmm. um, without, you know, being on the nose. And um, that seemed to, um, that seemed to meet my needs and it enabled me to kind of be a smart ass here and there, um, which I'm always up for, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was one of my favorite aspects of the voice. And also another thing that struck me as like, you know, uh, true to Rhode Island, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, giving it, giving it to other people, but then being hardest on the South um, yeah. seems like, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, a regional trait, but also, but the, you know, I don't want to minimize this voice because it's definitely a unique yeah. voice. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, no, you're exactly right though. I mean, there definitely is like a, um, a dialect, right. Of ball breaking. <laughs> um, that's very abundant. It's whether it's, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a place thing. It's a regional thing. I think it's also like a, like a, a class thing like a blue collar thing you know when all of those things get mixed together there is that sense of the defensive positioning of humor um it's kind of uh, a way of um you know reclaiming a teensy bit of your power and even you know self-deprecation i think falls into that as well you know you're when you're beating somebody else to the punch you're kind of taking a little bit back of yourself back uh, a little bit of yourself back you know um but um but yeah, it's, there definitely is like, um, uh, I think, yeah, there is like definitely a regional kind of flavor, flavor to it for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. The underdog mentality of that small New England state. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And also, I mean, and I was, you know, raised in a blue collar household. So there is that element of like, what do you think you're better than me? You know, and there's that kind of um, towny moxie, you yeah. know, it's like, a way of maybe gussying up inferiority a little bit, but mm -hmm. eager to put somebody in their place. You know, somebody has to prove that they're smarter than you, but within Rosemary, it's also happening inside of herself too. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, that makes, that brings me to um, the greatest hits of the family, which I thought were kind of very important to the book, which were um, the narrator describes these as being like, kind of like the three, operating principles or mantras of the family everyone's got problems what makes you think you're so special what happens in this house stays in this house stop crying no one's listening and no one cares mm -hmm. um and those like the thing about discretion there like what happens in this house stays in this house really stuck with me um and i don't want this just to be like you know rhode island rhode island rhode island talk mm -hmm. but Something about, and then there's this other moment later when the narrator gets fired um, and she's really worried. She's worried about her boss bad mouthing her around town. Mm -hmm. And there's something about like 
you know, wanting to keep your business private mm -hmm. and not wanting anyone to have like know about your problems or gossip about them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that being a protective instinct and then think of this novel and what the narrator is really trying to do is, is break out of like that protective instinct and like really let it all fly. Yeah. Um, I thought that tension was really interesting. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. That's great. That, um, I mean, I think when you're, you know, writing to the shape of, I think, childhood wounds, family wounds, mother wounds, all of those, there is like a kind of confusion as to, I think maybe within yourself or within this particular character, what's the difference between discretion and secrets, you know? Right. Um, and uh like in um in 12-step programs like in an AA they say you're only as sick as your secrets mm -hmm. um I think part of her kind of reckoning is uh um uh as things kind of as the past kind of gains potency in the present um she she's kind of learning how to translate the difference between discretion and and secrets the heavy heaviness of secrets especially when they're put on the shoulders of children you know um and uh and the kind of poisoning effect that mm -hmm. that that has um there's one uh point in the novel where the um the narrator kind of uh, is reflecting on, you know, growing up in her father's house, her father's house. And, um, and she says at one point that her father looks at her and I'm like paraphrasing myself here, <laughs> but looks at her and remembering, um, not the fire, but what the fire burned and how, um, no matter what way, what mode or form people rely upon to kind of gussy up their past, um, uh, especially in abusive households, nobody's on, nobody's untouched on the other side. Um, and it's like, uh, it's sand, it gets into everything. Um, and so in that capacity, the narrator, Rosemary, she becomes, you know, um, completely irredeemable to her family, um, first through like context. And then, uh, by saying aloud, naming and claiming the thing, this is what's wrong. This is what's always been wrong. Um, and that is, that's the rule. That's the one rule you don't, you don't right. break. Right. Yes. Um, she takes what happens in that house out of the house. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, the narrator throughout, or especially later in the book, uh, talks about the state of her aloneness. And I thought that was an interesting word choice rather than loneliness or solitude, like loneliness having like a very negative connotation and solitude having this like Thoreau, like, you know, stoic grandeur <laughs> to it or something. Yeah. Uh, and I wondered if you would talk about that choice of finding this like middle word in aloneness. Yeah, yeah I think um, uh, I, I was in thinking about this character who's like try, trying to determine you know am i am i an island because that's like kind of my lot in life or am i part have am i a man-made island you know um am i a an immovable unmovable mountain or am i just like 
fucked up beyond repair. Um, and she's kind of grappling with all of that. And to my to to my mind, aloneness is seemed to kind of speak to that just state of being. Yeah. Um, not sentimentalizing it, certainly not shining it up. And no, and you know, at one point she tries to say there's there's no um it's noble being alone and but like also not buying her own bullshit you know um but it's also alone to be alone um and uh and all the while you know having a a particular kind of understanding or a way of kind of noticing the world that's a direct result of you know having moved in and out of the dark you know um it uh it's it becomes like a way of uh whether she wants it or not of her connecting with other people um but it is it's the idea of aloneness is kind of like trying to gauge is this self-fulfilling prophecy prophecy did i am i is the world responding to me or am i responding to the world um yeah yeah. Definitely is in solitude. There's like <laughs> that yeah. sounds that sounds like kind of um yeah. Yeah, no, I thought it was, I thought it was a really good choice for that reason because solitude has this like it's a choice. I'm making this choice that's um because I'm strong enough to be to be yeah. solitary or whatever. Yeah. And loneliness feels like an emotional state rather than you know a state of being or something like oh, I'm feeling lonely today. Yeah. I should go see some people and yeah. this was like something else like the narrator trying to figure out like if she can be fully without emotional connections mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and you know without giving too much away it's interesting to see her you know get pulled into um you know like the helpline volunteering job and and a friendship mm-hmm. um and, and it's cool because like you don't often see in novels I feel like where friendship is like the primary important bond you know Mm -hmm. typically it's romance or love or or like a family situation and um like there's a really well-earned kind of like happy ending in here and I thought that was really cool (laughs) yeah yeah you know I think it's like kind of like um hope or or something like it maybe you know uh, or at least the the possibility of of hope of projecting herself onto the future um of a future to be held lightly you know um and uh that was yeah i mean it's it's important it was important to me too to um write to the shape of um hurt women hurting one another mm-hmm. um yeah and uh so in the end you know yeah ha- like moving towards understanding whatever understanding looks for her on any given day and engaging with somebody with an element of trust um uh yeah it was a happy ending <laughs> like, considering all. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah because it you know it's a certainly a heavy book in terms of you know like the material it's handling but at the same time it's also like a very funny book you know so it's so like there's balance throughout it's like you know the narrator is self-destructive and talks about wanting to go down 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 and you know we're grappling with abuse and suicide but there's there's jokes (laughs) and (laughs) and, yeah yeah yeah. and that feels like 
you know, true to this character and true to the region. And it also for the novel creates this, this form of balance that I think is yeah. really important. Yeah. I mean, I'm really interested um, in uh, like how place impacts narrator consciousness, you know, how that's another one of those kind of grimy crawl spaces that impacts not only what a character is saying but why they're saying it yeah um so and i think that like yeah the humor of uh, of the region of like you know kind of worker humor it's definitely a um it's in that way rosemary's sense of humor is an amalgam of my own i mean it's it's like when absurdity is everywhere when disorder is everywhere you gotta I mean, you gotta laugh, and it also is, it it also is just an extension of paying attention, right? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, so little surprises somebody who pays attention, and um, why not report on the fact? I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I love when the narrator's working at Filene's, which is kind of funny because it felt like, um, like I felt like maybe one of the only readers outside of Rhode Island who would know how that dates the novel. You know, like I, I know the region was like, I leave years ago. <laughs> um, but there are so many great moments when she's working that in the stock room there, like um, the old ladies at the perfume counter who say like, um, you got to drink your coffee through a straw so you don't ruin your lipstick, but using a straw will give you smile lines like no other. So, so it's like kind of boils down to either way you're screwed. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's, that is, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it could, I mean, maybe it's like, it's not, not, it's not pessimism. And I don't know that it's, it's definitely not nihilism, but it's, I, maybe it's just fatalism, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Here we are. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> make the best of it yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah um and I that um that is appealing to me you know um yeah. uh that's appealing to me as a as a human animal also as a reader and as a writer and um that's also the absurdity of art too like yeah. we're all kind of just <laughs> keeping one foot in front of the other at like the end of the world here like reporting yeah. on the back yeah, yeah the other moment i love it finally is someone trying to uh make a return for like a bottle of moisturizer that's empty because like i can imagine someone being like no one would ever try to do that and it's like yes like trying to send the meal back after you've eaten the whole thing like that's that, hap that happened to me that is a true anecdote that is, that is ripped from the headlines of my working history <laughs> somebody trying to return a completely empty product and just being like <sighs> Like, what did you think was going to happen? Here? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And if and you're then, fine with stealing this, then yeah. yeah, sure. We'll just, we'll take care of this. No problem. Yeah. And, and a really heartbreaking detail is the narrator gets that job and imagines calling her mom, who she's estranged from, and saying, I can probably get you a discount, which is just like, you know, it's it's such a like classic Rhode Island offering and it's such a small thing and for it to be imagined and to know that that conversation was about that that was like one of those like put the book down. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Oh, I'm, I'm so delighted that you uh, uh, picked up, I mean, that you had that emotional response, but also that you're attuned to the kind of ambient yeah. <laughs> aspects. I mean, I think I like to think that maybe if you're not super attuned to like our regional, like cacophony of eccentricity, you still might enjoy it. No, no, I think so. Yeah. Like, I, like, you know, I'm in Los Angeles now, so you know, I'm not interacting with Rhode Islanders super regularly. And when I tell people stories about like, just like standards of behavior there, they're kind of like, what is this place? You know, like I, someone was like, you make it sound like the most interesting place. I'm like, kind of is. So I don't think you have to be in on it to find it interesting. Um, But I think you did a great job of capturing it. I did. I wondered, you know, this is fiction. um, And, you know, I've been intentionally avoiding like just the obvious like oh how much of this is your life but I wonder if there's an anxiety being from Rhode Island about publishing a first person novel and having people just like assume this is your experience this is actually just nonfiction. like is there any like worry about having a first person novel come out and having everyone having people just like talk as if it's all just you yeah I mean you know I don't I don't think so you know I've been farming this one out to my shrink now for like a year um (laughs) I've been I mean I think that you know it is drawn from my experience it is still a novel um but um I don't know I think if if it very it very well could be that like somebody I went to high school with is like pouring through am I in this thing it sounds like but like that would be a personal problem on their part you know um I think that if you're with the exception of maybe two people if you're recognizing yourself in this thing like that ain't a good thing but (laughs) but but like by and large I think I think what's most interesting is actually um people that I'm friends with um and have been for years like I'm 40 you know I'm reflecting on a time in my life when I was not 40 (laughs) I was in my 20s you know um and people that I've known for years you know approaching me and being like wow I you know I had no idea and I said well how could you I you know this is not and I think that's kind of the point of the book is that you know we're all kind of like coming to the table with some you know a real heavy thing and um I'm and this is you know to talk about your themes of like secrecy versus discretion like I'm not leading with my sad stories Mm -hmm. I'm like I mean um in general and um I will say though and this is I think because you know like I didn't go to college I don't have a degree I, I haven't had this like writerly life where people maybe had seen this coming um and so I think the good thing is that I'm like basically tricking people I went to high school with into buying a minimal work of contemporary literary fiction you know um maybe they'll be super surprised and like and they'll be like oh wow this is but maybe not you know Um, maybe that weed dealer turned cop will get fired (laughs) one of them (laughs) oh that shit is crazy yeah (laughs) somebody somebody asked me about that they're like well you know well what do you what do you think in terms of people having you know uh jobs that maybe they're not qualified well let me tell you I think a lot of things about those people but 
yeah. I'm not an authority. Um, so I just, again, I just kind of wrote to the shape of a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, I don't know. I only have a couple more questions, like real Homer ones, which are like, uh, do you have a favorite bookstore in Providence? I, yes. Well, I, um, I love Riff Raff yeah. in Olneyville. I used to work um, there. Yeah. 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 No, well, I'm a West Sider. Yeah. Um, uh, so I love, I love Olneyville where I'm having my book launch there, which I'm awesome. excited about. Um, but I also love symposium books downtown. Yeah. Um, they have a really great used selection and yeah. as somebody who has been totally broke longer than I have been. Um, I could only ever afford, if I was buying books, I could only ever afford used books. And so um, I always loved that. I always loved, um, I, I kind of, yeah, I kind of like term, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not super impressed by people that maybe turn their nose up that people who don't have a lot, like can only buy used books or yeah. um you find cooler editions and rare stuff at used books anyway yeah, when they're inscribed too oh yeah and it's like Love oh to, to so and so on their confirmation i'm like oh my god Michael, <laughs> where are you i hope you're okay <laughs> i hope you loved this copy <laughs> i got um a copy of um rilke has this um book about like the virgin mary it's like a cycle of poems about the virgin mary and i got a copy at a uh, paper nautilus like in wayland square oh, yeah, yeah. and it's like an old edition it was like 10 bucks and it was um signed um in this beautiful script handwriting from this guy to his mother for mother's day oh, wow. uh and it's just such a lovely edition such a nice find at, at a province used bookstore it's one of my like you know treasured ones yeah I also like too that when you see um uh passages that have been underlined. Oh like, yeah, I, yeah. I love that. And I also love it when I'm kind of dubious, like, really? That one? That one? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that will happen for me when I'm rereading books where I underline. I was like, I thought that was the one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I um I uh I recently um gave a friend of mine my copy of 300 arguments um oh Sarah love that Sarah yeah. yeah yeah i'll read anything that she writes anything did like, you read very cool people the novel yeah that novel eviscerated me i like finished it and like pushed it slowly across the <laughs> it, it, it it like put it it was so in contact with something like so close to my bones like mm -hmm. some weird unknown mineral um that uh that she articulated it was such an amazing powerful powerful uh powerful novel i was i think anytime that she has new work coming out it's like a cause for celebration but i remember when i heard she wrote a novel i was like yes yeah <laughs> but i gave my friend my copy of 300 arguments and i wanted it to be like the one that i've had for a while <laughs> was, and she was really excited but she's flipping through she's like like She's like, all of this is underlined. I'm like, yeah, for emphasis. I'm like, you know? like no. <laughs> but that's that's amazing to me because that's just how she's writing on the sentence level. I mean, that's it, you know, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah when you talk about concision, like she's like really, really a master of that. Yeah. Um, 
300 arguments and ongoingness. It was like, I think it was those, you know, last summer I was in Providence before I moved out here and read 300 arguments. And then just immediately it was like, what else? Give me, give me all of the service. Yeah. 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 Um, I, uh, I met her via Zoom um, for this thing through poets and writers. And it was great because um it was like a, a thing for emerging artists. So it was like, you know, you you talk to people in the industry, people that are working in publishing, whether they're writing or editing or agents, and everybody was like offering their insight, you know. And Sarah was really great because she was just like, keep your overhead low. Like, you know, she's <laughs> like, she like live in a cheap city, keep yeah. it. And I was like, yes, okay, New Englander, boom. Like yeah, she's gonna yeah. be pragmatic. Yeah. Yeah. This, the feeling of the cold in that book, like I know she's talking about emotional coldness, but like, you know, I read it months ago now and us talking about it. I just, I feel like I'm shivering just from like, yeah. the yeah, yeah. 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 It, it was, it was so good. It was like, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it, 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 ta it, it cut along the nerve in a very specific mm -hmm. way. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, I'm, it was like, I, it, I'm even struggling even now to kind of describe what it was. It was like, um, it was like haunted, but it was like such a dense bone chill, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. but, um, but I, uh, I definitely, um, met myself in that, in a lot of the lines in that, in that yeah. you know, yeah. for sure. My last question is, uh, whether or not you have uh, strong opinions about Buddy Cianci, uh, the former mayor of Providence. No, I, I do. Um, uh, I I do have strong fists. Fucking buddy, man. Like you know, like I actually live here, so I yeah. haven't really been. You know, I've never, I've never really um, subscribed to the whole like, you know, caricature clown. You know, yeah. it's like this is a fucking gangster that man our city, and people be like, yeah, but water fire, and I'm like, fuck water fire, man. <laughs> I, I, um, uh, and so when he he reran you, yeah, I mean, he, was, yeah he reran a couple years ago. He wanted to die in office. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, um, so yeah, I just I have I have very very strong opinion. I mean, you even think of like so for people that don't know, we had a completely corrupt gangster that was a mayor, uh, the mayor of Providence. And um, he, uh, everybody thinks that he did like all these wonderful, fantastic things for the city, you know, centering tourism, bringing people back, you know, but neglecting the people that live here at every turn. But like, he built this mall. Everybody said, oh, the mall is so great. Meanwhile, the people that built the mall will not park in the parking garage because it's so poorly built. <laughs> like they know firsthand yeah, yeah. how it's like slapped together on a wing and a prayer. Yeah. Um, but as far as like Rhode Island Italiano celebrities, Frank Caprio, Judge Caprio, yeah. court and prop caught in Providence. Now he's the real MVP because he's he's just a sweetheart. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. And he goes to the Walgreens in my neighborhood. 
Yeah. <laughs> I love that. So and I bet if you, and if you go up to him, I bet he's very nice. That's yes. all here. He's very nice. Yeah. He is. He's a very nice man. And he yeah. called me a very nice young lady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I find Buddy really interesting because um, you know, he kind of understood that there was a lot he could get away with if he could just remember people's names and make them feel important you know and 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 he knew that like fulfilling small promises like planting a tree on the street or Mm -hmm. you know redoing a playground Mm -hmm. you know in create this atmosphere of goodwill underneath which he could he could really just like fulfill his appetite for power and women Mm -hmm. money and Mm -hmm. all this stuff I, i find that really interesting just like the the interpersonal charismatic sweetheart buddy and then the other buddy that people talk about which is really scary and then like you know not to get too like down in the weeds but like Providence's pension system like the underfunded horrible situation that's in it that's buddy like yeah. <laughs> he yeah. cut those yeah. deals yeah yeah, yeah. So. well and I think there is just a general at I mean it's like uh I mean, it's a uniquely, I think, maybe American sort of way of being of, you know, gussying up the, the, um, like, like, uh, organized criminals and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, um, yeah that's, yeah. I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole genre of. Right, you know, right. Anti-hero, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But then when you actually live in the place, um, yeah. it's always just like, kind of like, all right, this isn't this is this isn't there's no movie montage energy here like i'm just trying to get the bus to work yeah can we we have one thing that works that's maybe not about like getting the tourists here on the weekends yeah 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 marching he loved parades he loved it yeah he sure did the the last time i i saw him like in person was on the hill was on federal hill um and it was on St. Joseph's Day and I was oh, going yeah. to get a Zeppeli. This was years ago. I was going to get a Zeppeli as one does. Yeah. Um <laughs> St. Joseph's Day and he was like in a booth outside of Roma Cafe like yeah. on the radio but <laughs> on the street and I didn't recognize him at first cuz he didn't have his No wig. to pay post federal prison. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, wild. Absolutely yeah. wild. Well, I'm going to say rest in peace, buddy. You right. Deeply flawed man. Yeah. <laughs> we all, uh, but aren't we all? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he was a bastard, but he was our bastard. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. that's the line. That's the line. Um, thank you so much for taking the time, Courtney. That was so much fun. Uh, today's guest was Courtney Donnell, and we were discussing her novel, It's Not Nothing. You can order a copy at skylightbooks.com or swing by and pick it up in the store. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again, Courtney. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.